Hello, everyone, and welcome back to an all-new episode of The Financial Confessions. It's me, your host, Chelsea Fagan, founder and CEO of The Financial Diet. And today I am here to talk about something that most of you, if not all of you, have probably been reading about, thinking about, even being affected by in the past few weeks. We did an interview a few months ago here on TFC with YouTuber Dan Olson, who did a massively viral video sort of breaking down and exposing NFTs and the broader sort of cryptocurrency world and sort of all of the underlying problems and dangers. Our episode with him is actually by far our most viewed and downloaded podcast ever, speaking, I think, to the appetite that people have for real clarity and candor around these issues, which in many cases are intentionally confusing. And a lot of you might be aware of what has been referred to in the past few weeks as the crypto crash. People are talking about the entire cryptocurrency market, its underlying structures, having a bit of a meltdown and being exposed in many cases for being flawed, or unusable or rigged from the get-go. And we're already seeing people in many cases losing huge amounts of money that they were in many ways lured into investing in these coins by the celebrities being paid to advertise to them, the undisclosed influencers who are hyping up these products, and a massive advertising campaign designed to convince people that these were not only legitimate financial instruments, but also the answer to a generation of young adults who are in many ways economically disenfranchised and without a ton of opportunity. The meltdown is a complicated thing, right? Because on the one hand, the crypto bros, as many people have come to think of them, have been quite damaging to the public discourse around things like macroeconomics and regulation, and even very combative to people who attempted to point out some of these dangers from the get-go. In general, not the most sympathetic bunch. That being said, we're also in the same way we might look at a stay-at-home mother who was suckered into an MLM and is now heavily in debt with a garage full of essential oils, we have to see this person as initially being victimized and preyed upon for what are legitimate economic concerns and limitations. They might have been misdirected in their energy and led into a bad opportunity, but they are still at some level victims. And now with Reddit forums and other places on the internet filling up with people lamenting the meltdown, and even in some cases talking about serious mental health issues or things like suicidal ideation because of this extreme loss, because it's not just a loss of money, right? For many of these people, it's also loss of a worldview or a perceived opportunity. I think it's more important than ever to really explore what is actually happening in this crypto crash, what its implications are for the broader economy, and what will happen to all of these people who invested in crypto, not just as a financial instrument, but as, like I said, that new and exciting worldview. My guest today has probably been one of the most prominent voices in the anti-crypto movement well before it was cool to do so. He's someone who has put quite a lot on the line and has received a not insignificant amount of harassment from the bros who don't wanna hear any of that negging about their big financial opportunity. He's a software engineer based in London and a writer and educator on all things crypto, usually from the extremely anti-perspective. His name is Stephen Deal, and thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Chelsea. It's lovely to be here today. 
And before we get started, I want to thank Calm, the number one mental wellness app and one of my personal favorite apps for supporting the financial confessions. Calm is offering you an exclusive offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com TFC. And I also want to thank HelloFresh for supporting this episode of the financial confessions. Go to hellofresh.com TFC16 and use code TFC16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. Uh, actually, I'm a big fan of your channel. It's one of the kind of few places on YouTube where we can kind of say like very sensible things about finance compared to the kind of the rest of the sea of YouTube, which is, shall we say, less sensible sometimes. So it's wonderful oh. to be here today. My little bit about me as a background, like um, I'm a software engineer based here in London. Uh, I'm a blogger, writer, activist, whole combination of a bunch of things. So uh, I've been working in the software industry for about 15 years, mostly kind of in or around financial services. So I have this kind of weird synthesis of knowledge that I know enough about finance, I know enough about software to kind of be able to kind of look at um, where those two fields intersect. And in the last couple of years, um, increasingly technology has become a bit more financial as the rise of things like crypto assets. And um, in the last, I'd say two or three years, we've seen kind of really what I would call like a very large bubble in this asset class uh, and a lot of growth in public interest. And I started writing about crypto about two years ago when I started to kind of regard it as kind of less more, less of a kind of um, fringe kind of curio and more of a kind of increasingly systemic problem in both the technology field and in the larger economy. And I obviously have a very, very kind of negative view of these, these asset classes, and uh, I view them as not all that dissimilar from an MLM. There's some minor distinctions, but in practice, they're kind of like Silicon Valley's form of an MLM. And I think at the heart of a lot of these technologies, there's not a whole technology actually there that actually works to do something practical for the world. And a lot of them are actually kind of very deeply predatory. And that's kind of the real thrust of my writing. So... Stephen, I mentioned in the intro that you are um, probably one of the most, um, let's just say, active anti-crypto voices. Definitely have a bit of a, you're, you're quite spicy on, you know, Twitter and on some of your other um, forums, and you know, can be, I think. Uh, you've definitely been a target in the past of some of the the crypto bros and the target of their ire, and you've you know kind of gone back and forth with some of them, and you definitely seem to have what I would describe as like a very righteous anger towards a lot of this stuff, and you know I feel that way as well about crypto. I also you know to use again the comparable example, feel extremely that way uh, about MLMs, which you know our audience's primary is almost all women, our company's all women, um, and we are targeted by MLMs the way men have been targeted by crypto in recent years. Um, and so we do have that same righteous anger when we do things like anti-MLM content. But often what we kind of run into the problem of, like I alluded to in the intro, is the sort of nuances and distinction and the different tacts to take between people who are truly nefarious and predatory actors and people who are victims and people who completely run the spectrum in between. Um, and especially now that you're seeing this meltdown, you're seeing a lot of the, let's just say, lower and middle tier crypto bros, crypto buyers, we can even say, because they're not all men. They are majority men, but not all. Um, now that you're seeing the sort of lower and middle class of the crypto ecosystem just get their 
financially rocked um, while, you know, the big holders, the whales are able to, you know, cash out and skirt the system and all that stuff. Where do you sort of, can you explain a little bit the sort of righteousness of your fury, but also describe a little bit how you view um, treating and speaking to the spectrum of those victims who were just suckered in by Matt Damon and the people who should probably be in prison? Yeah, I mean, that's the problem with these kind of both MLMs and cryptos, that the line between kind of victim and perpetrator becomes extremely blurry. Because like by their nature, like most of these schemes require you to recruit. That's the only way you basically create exit liquidity for yourself. Because like the only value of a crypto token um, comes from basically getting another fool to buy it off of you, right? They are, you know, a zero sum <laughs> game at the end of the day. If you bought, you know, low and sold high, somebody else bought high and sold low. There's no source of income from outside the system, right? And so basically these systems have this kind of complex myth-making built around them because they need to draw more and more and more suckers in. And they do that by kind of telling these stories about, oh, it's gonna be some sort of, you know, grand new vision of the future. Just like MLMs kind of bring, you know, you can bring generational wealth, you can you know, have prosperity, you can kind of bring, be your own boss. And it's exactly the same message. Like they're tapping into the, exactly the same kind of legitimate feelings that people genuinely actually have. They want to feel financially secure. They want to have a, you know, a better future. And those are all legitimate things to want. Um, but unfortunately, just like with MLMs, there's a fundamental economic problem at the heart of all of these pyramid schemes is that you can't Gen make, you know, you can't create a system that kind of creates wealth out of nothing, right? You only create wealth by, you know, basically making goods and services or, you know, doing favors for other people in exchange for your time, right? Anybody tells you you can do anything other than that is probably basically selling you something basically at the end of the day. And the right effective strategy um, toward these things is to pull people out of them because that's the only thing that kind of breaks the cycle. You need to kind of get your friends who are involved in MLMs or in crypto out. And there's a lot of debate about what's the best way to kind of bring people out. I mean, like it's almost as hard as kind of pulling people out of cults sometimes uh, because these things have this kind of really ability to kind of warp your thinking in ways that's very, very strange and pathological. And I think we all have friends that we know have been dragged into crypto or in MLMs. And it's really, really hard to kind of get them to kind of like sit down and like, okay, here's a macroeconomics textbook. Let's go through chapter one and figure out like why this thing you're doing doesn't actually make any sense. So a lot of the righteous anger that I have is actually not directed toward the victims. I'd say mostly the victims because it's blurry. Um, it's directed at mostly people in my industry. So I used to have much more of a following kind of in the software industry itself because I'm kind of a software engineer by trade. And so like things like Twitter where software engineers talk to other software engineers. And what I don't have a whole lot of sympathy for is what I think are basically the perpetrators of these schemes, because these are people that legitimately know what they're doing. They, a lot of them understand the economics of it. They understand that it's a fraudulent enterprise, but they think that they can profit from it personally by exploiting it. And that to me is, there's no good faith component to that. Like if you're building a crypto token that you know is a scam, um, intentionally and going off to basically intentionally arbitrage regulation to enrich yourself. I don't have a whole lot of sympathy for those people because they might be kind of somewhat have disconnected thinking about what they're doing, but they know what they're doing. And at this point, you know, you could read what the eight Nobel Prize winners are writing. You could read what the New York Times is reporting every day. You could read what the Financial Times is writing. And if you're choosing not to go out and educate yourself about the work that you're doing and its impact on other people and the public, 
then you know you're not basically a responsible engineer because part of engineering as a practice is about putting public interest above your own right that's what separates like our craft from other things where we have a kind of professional standard and what i've seen in the last i'd say four or five years is a complete breakdown of that kind of professional ethics and people just choosing to enrich themselves on the back of basically defrauding the public in mass and that makes me rather sad and angry and that's a lot where my kind of anger comes from because i don't see this as it's not the level that our our profession should aspire to and we we should be doing better than this i certainly agree and you know i mean the righteous anger that you reserve for your own industry re software engineers slash tech people um i feel the same about the personal finance people who have been promoting this stuff taking those ad dollars or doing affiliate marketing or god forbid making their own cryptocurrencies um yeah i mean listen dante's inferno is all i'm saying is where you guys are going <clears throat> you mentioned that your um expertise in the fields of both tech and finance you know, neither of which you're maybe the most uh, sort of expert person on, but you have a level of expertise in both subject matters to speak in the middle of that Venn diagram and to be able to kind of debunk or to, um, you know, disassemble these ideas. From my perspective, what crypto, what has always made crypto so particularly dangerous is the fact that there are so few people who have um, the right combination of expertise to not only be able to even understand it, but also to debunk it. And that sort of lack of ability in the layperson or even people with some subject matter knowledge in either category um, to really fully understand it has been what led to this, I think, really prevalent perception of, well, I can't explain it, so there must be something really special or kind of valuable about it. Can you speak a little bit to how the marketing of crypto and the presentation have, of crypto has really benefited from the lack of public knowledge on these two spaces intersecting? Absolutely. I think you'll have to refer back to Dan Olson's interview. I think he did a very good job at it, kind of explaining that. And for those who haven't seen Dan Olson's like magnum opus, this two-hour kind of deconstruction of crypto called Line Goes Up, watch that now. Pause the video and do that. But what Dan Olson said was basically like crypto is this kind of financial myth-making. Um, it's the belief that we're going to reinvent money from first principles, independent of existing power structures. And that's the kind of really kind of the narrative thrust around the whole project. In practice, it means something very, very different. Um, but there's this kind of myth surrounding it, which is wrapped in all of this level of obscurantism and jargon and technical babble. Um, and, you know, it's really difficult to kind of be able to see both through the technology, through the economics, uh, and just the myth-making itself, because um, these things are just rather complicated myths to kind of deconstruct. And like, God bless Dan for basically going through and kind of doing that in his video. But like, in order to do these kind of things, you really have to have like a level of esoteric knowledge that the general public generally doesn't, nor should they really necessarily have. Like, you have to know things about like, how does money get created in like central banks and like, you know, how does, you know, what is the philosophical foundations of money and like, why are securities regulated and like, why are, you know, financial assets, what, 
how do they have their value? And these are questions that the general lay public generally shouldn't have to worry about because they should be protected from sort of weird implementation details of the financial system by our regulators. And unfortunately, right now, what we have is this kind of wild west where a bunch of people have basically been able to do a bunch of things that have basically been illegal in markets for the last 90 years or so. And they've wrapped them up in this kind of story and this narrative about, oh, we're going to rebuild a whole new financial system. We're going to, you know, unbank, you know, bank the unbanked, and we're going to create whole new asset classes. And when you dig into all of these stories and you actually talk to the experts on these subjects, none of them make any sense from both a technology perspective and an economics perspective. Because crypto has kind of two competing narratives. One, that we have a sort of new form of money. And the second is that we have basically a new form of investment. Now, if we just set aside for the fact that those two are diametrically opposite, they literally cannot coexist. Like something that is as good as money cannot be a good investment. Something that will go to the moon is not something you're ever going to buy your own coffee with, right? Something that goes up and down a lot and has a lot of speculative value, right, can never serve the function of money and vice versa. Something that's very stable and has like 2% you know, inflation for like, you know, 10 years is generally not a good investment because it doesn't have any potential for price appreciation. And so when you kind of intellectually deconstruct all of the crypto narratives, and I have a podcast where I basically every week I just do exactly this, you can find all of the various different narratives and there are many of them, but when you dig down to the base foundations of them, they're all rest on absurdities. They all don't make any sense. Well said. So as I mentioned in the intro, we're experiencing what many are referring to as a bit of a crypto crash. Um, can you talk a little bit about what is happening right now from your view? And we'll get to the macroeconomic implications a bit later, but specifically for the crypto ecosystem, um, do you feel that this is heralding a bit of an end of things or how do you see this current moment? Well, I, I wish I had my crystal ball and I could, could predict the future, but this certainly seems like a really drastic event that's going to force regulators to take a very serious look at the crypto market, because I think it's been a long time coming and things have just really, truly gotten out of control. And we've seen that kind of completely unhinged meltdown in the last week or so with this stable coin called Luna, which for those that don't know, we've basically experienced a run much similar to kind of like a bank run that we used to have back in like the 1920s in the Great Depression. But it happened in like a very um, niche stable coin, which happened to have, you know, several hundred billion dollars worth of notional crypto value locked into it. And it basically experienced a run at like warp speed, like in the span of a few days, this thing basically just completely imploded and everybody's effectively accounts or their, their holdings in this asset basically just completely evaporated, right? They went to nothing. Um, and so that was a symptom of the larger crypto market having a series of shocks. Um, and that can have some very drastic effects across the entire market. We saw the entire thing basically like lose 50% of its value in the last week or so. And, you know, that's a really extreme shift in markets. Like stock markets don't move like that generally. And what we're seeing right now is a period of increased volatility, um, some potentially systemic risk to the entire crypto ecosystem itself and just a lot more, you know, loss of faith in the entire ecosystem. You've mentioned the word regulation a few times now. And what I find so inherently fascinating about the entire sort of crypto ecosystem, and we talked a lot about this in my interview with Dan Olson, which we'll link to you, you guys too, but 
the sort of ideological bedrock of cryptocurrency is very fundamentally libertarian. It's very fundamentally um, anti-regulatory, very, very much, uh, in my mind, let's just say, fantastical idea of a free market, a childlike idea maybe of a free market. Um, But it's very much, you know, a lot of what sort of the crypto narrative and myth-making has always kind of rested itself on is this idea that what is... um, you know, limiting about the traditional financial sector economy, et cetera, or what is negative about it is the regulation. And I think, I mean, we talk quite a lot in videos about how so many of our most fundamental systemic macroeconomic problems that we see in America are directly tied to things like deregulation of the financial markets. Um, But it is really interesting to see this ecosystem and this ideology that so fundamentally come from this anti-regulatory position now being faced, and I mean, even pre-crypto crash, we saw it with things like people's wallets getting hacked, you know, falling prey to, you know, really, in my opinion, not super convincing phishing attacks, you know, all of this stuff, losing their their money, which in the case of, you know, a bank would be maybe FDIC insured, or, you know, if it were uh, something you were experiencing with the traditional financial services company, you have things like the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which can step in. Um, But you have this system, the Wild West, like you said, where people are seeing these, um, you know, falling victim to fraud, seeing all kinds of um, nefarious behavior by these systems. And then in the case of something like Luna, seeing, you know, their entire, you know, net worth in the the coin being decimated with no accountability to, you know, any of the key players here. And now they're, I think, understandably crying out for someone to hold people accountable, um, you know, or to provide some structure. But what we're fundamentally talking about there is things like regulation and oversight. Um, So I would be really interested to hear you talk about, do you think that the version of crypto that might continue to exist is going to become a fundamentally regulated one? Or do we think that much more regulation and oversight, especially from government entities, is so anathema to cryptocurrency as a concept that the two can't coexist? Oh, that's a really good question. I think we have to kind of contextualize it a little bit and kind of talk about like the regulation that exists in markets. I'll just use the equities markets, the stock market, um, was largely put in place by our grandparents back in like the 1930s, um, following an era which, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And so like, despite all of the weirdness in the crypto markets today, nothing is actually new because we tried this kind of model of markets in the past in the 1920s, they were called like the roaring 20s. Like there's a lot of speculative media that happened. Um, There's a lot of things like called bucket shops where these kind of like fraudulent stockbrokers that would sell people on, you know, fantastical, you know, shares of, you know, oil wells in distant countries and gold mines. and, um, And so, you know, this all ended very badly when we had this kind of complete laissez-faire, like no regulation, anything goes kind of market with the market crash of 1929, um, which basically saw the stock market kind of retrace itself back to like, you know, 10% of where it was at the height, um, as followed by a series of like, I think almost 10,000 different bank runs across the entire United States. So this was a financial catastrophe on a scale that we largely hadn't seen at that point. Um, And 
the laws that came into place, which are primarily the Securities Act of 1933 and the Securities and Exchange Act of 1934, were set in place to kind of remedy you know, and clean up the mess from the Great Depression. And largely they were successful. And these are the laws uh, whose remit is governed by over the entire stock market today. Um, and I think these laws protect people a lot more than they know because uh, they've been developed incrementally over the years in response to all different frauds that have sort of occurred in the market. And regulation did not stifle markets. In fact, after the Great Depression, the markets retraced themselves back up to extremely new highs after the United States recovered from like World War II. And like that gives rise to the kind of flourishing of the kind of US economy and having the deepest capital markets in the world. So regulation is not a priori a bad thing or antithetical to like prosperity, growth and progress. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It generally encourages more trust in markets and more investment. Now, what we have right now is basically with the internet, people have figured out a way to kind of basically kind of route around the Securities Act by issuing things that's the first approximation kind of look like stocks. So crypto assets are not really currencies despite the namesake. They're actually much closer to like, um, like a share of a company, except it's a share in a company that doesn't actually do anything. It doesn't mm. actually have any underlying cash flows or business or product or customers, right? So it's a share in nothing. It's basically a financialization of a hot air as Elizabeth Warren often says, right? Um, that has happened throughout history and it's never ended very well. Like there's all these kind of speculative meetings back in the 1700s when people like first discovered that we're gonna create joint stock companies. And then people were like, what if we create a joint stock company and nothing? And then people just like buy it, right? And so a lot of these regulations actually exist for a very good reason, because if they're not there, people generally try to financialize nothingness. And it turns out you can sell nothing to a lot of people and they'll fall, fall for it. And right now, like that's what's happening. Um, we're creating a new class of basically scoff law securities, which are being used to kind of arbitrage the Securities Act and create these kind of what are called like what we call like blue sky securities, basically securities not backed by any kind of actual economic enterprise. And that's basically what crypto assets are. They're basically unregistered illegal securities. And unfortunately, that very by its very premise is antithetical to kind of existing under the rule of law. Like if you mm. brought you know, illegal securities under the rule of law, they would just be securities at that point. And right. that's the kind of essence of it. So I don't fundamentally see that crypto really has any kind of like what benefit is there society to financialize kind of, you know, speculative nothingness. Um, that's what these, you know, what is the value of a Dogecoin? The only thing backing it is a meme of a talking dog, right? You know, that's pretty much what crypto assets are. I just like there's something so just honestly, I mean, at least during like the Beanie Babies craze, you had actual Beanie Babies or during the Tulip craze, you you had some pretty flowers like it's just so sad to think about the same sort of, you know, crazed mentality happening around something as, you know, utterly non-existent as a receipt of a JPEG of a dog meme. I just feel like we need higher standards for our scams. Um, okay, so we do have a ton of questions from you guys. But first, before we get into all of the amazing questions that you sent us, this is a heavy conversation and it is time for a little break. And this is technically an ad break, but our partners at Calm want you to focus on yourself for a moment. Take a deep breath and let it out. Relax wherever you're holding your tension. It's important to tune in and recenter and Calm can help. 
With that said, we're excited to be partnering with Calm, the number one mental wellness app, to give you the tools that improve the way you feel. Reduce stress and anxiety through guided meditations, improve focus with curated music tracks, and rest and recharge with Calm's imaginative sleep stories for children and adults. There's even new daily movement sessions designed to relax your body and uplift your mind. And if you're an ASMR queen like yours truly, you will love all of their super relaxing sleeping stories because I listen to more of those than I would like to admit. Calm is offering you an exclusive offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash TFC. Go to calm.com slash TFC for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. That's calm.com slash TFC. And if you've been following TFD for any amount of time, you'll know many of us love to cook and that many of us love HelloFresh. Whether you're an avid home cook or someone who is just learning their way around the kitchen, HelloFresh makes cooking at home both easy and enjoyable. HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit. Go to HelloFresh.com TFC16 and use code TFC16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. One reason many people never bother to venture into cooking is because of the time and effort that it takes. Ordering is always convenient, but it gets expensive, and enjoying food you cooked yourself is always more satisfying. HelloFresh is all about convenience. Not only do the ingredients come pre-portioned so you're not overbuying or wasting food, but their meals don't take a lot of time to prep. Get farm-fresh seasonal produce and easy-to-make recipes delivered right to your door every week. And pick your favorites from 50 different weekly options and skip weeks when you need to, change your delivery date, or update your preferences in the HelloFresh app. You can also customize your favorite dishes with their new Hello Custom offerings by swapping out one protein or side for another, upgrading for a more luxe experience, or even adding protein to a veggie meal. That means more choices, more variety, and more meals tailored to you. TFT team member Holly just recently tried out HelloFresh's One Pan Santa Fe Pork Tacos, which took less than 20 minutes to make, had minimal cleanup, and tasted even better than her favorite takeout tacos for a fraction of the wait time and cost. Go to HelloFresh.com TFC16 and use code TFC16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. So you guys sent in a huge number of questions for Steve, and I won't have time to get to them all, but I'm going to get to as many as I can. Um, feel free to pass on any of these, Stephen, but let's just go through them. Where did all of the fiat currency that was used to buy crypto go? I presume it's all offshore by now, but is there any chance that any or all of it could be recovered when everything comes crashing down? Yeah, that's a really good question. So no, um, by the nature of the investment, um, crypto is what's called in economics a negative sum game, which means that basically more money flows out of the system than flows in, right? Um, so crypto assets are not productive. Like they're not an investment in a company that actually does anything in the world, right? So like when you buy an Apple share, right? Apple makes really great phones, right? And they sell them for more than they cost to make, right? And that money flows into the company. And that money can be used to either do things like, well, reinvest in the business to produce more awesome phones or to pay dividends to its shareholders or to buy back its own stock, which has generally has the effect of kind of raising the price and kind of redistributing the profits of the company back to its shareholders. Um, so generally stocks are not zero sum, um, but crypto assets don't have anything. They're not a claim on the future cash flows of an enterprise. They are just a it's a token that you can trade based on like a doc talking dog meme or something. So like the only money that comes in is from basically recruiting more people to buy out your position, right? Forever. <laughs> That's what they're based on. That's the economic absurdities we keep talking about. And so unfortunately, when you take into account like transaction costs and the fact that like the miners, the computers, 
that basically are responsible for validating the blockchain. I won't go into the details of that, but there's these big, you know, computer farms that basically sit there and spin uh, over and over and over again doing useless computations. Those cost money in the form of electricity. And, you know, the power grid doesn't take Bitcoin, they only take dollars, right? So all of the Bitcoin that's generated from the mining has to be paid for in dollars. And so the people running the mining farms have to cash out into dollars. So this creates a kind of net outflow from the system that is, changes based on the day, but it's, I think it's around three to $6 million a day or something like $30 billion a year or something. Um, and so, you know, no, the entire system is like a giant, like uh, funnel like water is just kind of slowly flowing out of it over time. And so it constantly requires a new inflow of cash to kind of replace the cash that gets siphoned out of it. So no, um, unfortunately, it's kind of like a money black hole. Um, I, this is just, I can't believe this stuff. There's going to be no justice, I know, but like we maybe in the afterlife, some of these people will meet justice. Um, okay, so you mentioned the blockchain. Um, and I think, you know, especially for like the lay person, there's been a lot of myth making around blockchain technology and everything that it means. But we have people asking about the fact that we're sort of seeing with a lot of the these crypto meltdowns that um, the big exchanges and the more sort of like legitimate uh, cryptocurrency operations don't even utilize the blockchain technology. They can't. Um, so can you explain kind of the actual difference between like what is still using blockchain versus what isn't in this scenario? Okay. So you could think of the blockchain as basically being like a ledger, uh, which is basically records kind of credits and debits classically in the banking world, right? But it's a ledger that's basically stored across a lot of computers. And it's basically replicated in this really slow process that allows people to kind of move this kind of native currency on the ledger between each other. And the underlying technology is actually kind of a clever trick. It actually does kind of work, but unfortunately it doesn't actually work to do anything actually useful. Um, so blockchain um, is just a very, very, very slow database that's primarily used for applications where you don't want to have a single point of failure because you don't want to be shut down by like governments. Mm -hmm. So for the most part, it has this property called like censorship resistance, basically by being, by spreading all of the, the ledger around to everybody in the world, there's no one entity that the US government can come raid and basically say like, oh, you have to shut down now because if you were doing this stuff in the United States, it would fall under the remit of like the Securities Act. But if you spread it around, like there's no basically way for not easily, at least for governments to basically shut it down. And so um, unfortunately, blockchains are very, very slow. Uh, they're really, really inefficient. Uh, they can do like seven transactions a second, like, which is um, like basically enough to run like a small supermarket, but not a country. <laughs> um, and so what a lot of these projects have done is they basically kind of moved away from this kind of censorship resistance to, to basically just using traditional databases. And they run these servers off in like, you know, like maybe instead of having thousands of them, now there's like four of them and they're all set up in like the Cayman Islands or like in Switzerland or something, right? And that allows them to scale up a little better, but unfortunately means they've moved the kind of the core value proposition that they exist for in the first place, right? They come to first approximation kind of like scoff law banks kind of issuing their own currency. And like usually entities that try to do that uh, generally get shut down. And so blockchain isn't a terribly good technology unless you want to do things like break the law, unfortunately. 
Which, you know, I mean, listen, sometimes breaking the law is cool, um, but we don't need to get all that nerd involved. Uh, just buy some drugs. Okay. Um, uh, so someone is saying, um, what does this mean for El Salvador as their president keeps gambling their money on Bitcoin? Yeah, unfortunately, the, the situation in El Salvador is actually kind of rather tragic because um, their leader, some might say a dictator, basically decided to go taking you know, the sovereign wealth of the country and sort of investing it in Bitcoin, allegedly as a way to kind of build sort of domestic payment infrastructure for El Salvador, which primarily tends to use like the dollar, the US dollar internally, because their currency is not um, generally very, <laughs> generally good there. So um it's really tragic because what they've done is basically, you know, spent a lot of public money to basically just let the, the leader of the country go like gamble it away in the markets. And every single investment that the leader has made has gone down ever since he's done them, which means that the public and the taxpayers are basically funneling these kind of gambling spree for no reason. Uh, because you can't actually use Bitcoin as a means of payment in El Salvador because it kind of sucks as a means of payment because it's too slow and it's too volatile. And so I can't see this ending well for the average kind of El Salvadorian citizen. And this is one of those things that makes me really, really angry because like all of these government, like the IMF and you know the United States all warned El Salvador what would happen if this thing happened because it's, it's really profoundly stupid thing to do. And yet we had to watch it unfold in real time as the citizens are suffering. And El Salvador, you know, is not a great place. I mean, it has a very high murder rate. And so it's basically just to take all this public money and just kind of siphon it away, basically to use as exit liquidity for a bunch of people in wealthy countries to become even wealthier. I mean, this is, gets really profoundly negative because like you're basically just using the poor in the global South as your own kind of personal piggy bank. And that to me is intolerable. Well, that's been a huge, aspect of like the whitewashing of a lot of crypto efforts is like we're giving, you know, uh, people in developing countries the ability to like, you know, buy things more easily, whatever. And almost without fail, I think it's manifesting in exactly what you're describing, which is just taking what little money they have and just using it to filter upwards into the liquidity market. Yeah, I mean, it's just using them as the bottom of the pyramid scheme, <laughs> unfortunately. That's what crypto has become now because they've run out of fools, so they have to kind of extend it off to kind of the developing world now. And that is truly a tragedy. Which is another, I think, extremely pertinent connection between crypto and MLMs. So as we discussed on our um, interview this season with uh, the professor and MLM expert Bill Keep. Um, MLMs are actually shrinking in popularity in the U.S. now, finally, finally, although it had an uptick after COVID, but finally shrinking, but it's exploding in the rest of the world and aggressively targeting um, Latin American countries, Southeast Asian countries. You know, these, I think, like you said, when you run out of fools in the U.S., I mean, there's only so many places that you can go and you have to prey on places that have much lower access to things like, you know, education about these issues. Even in some cases, media in general access is super low. So, you know, to get them into the bottom of the pyramid is going to be a lot easier. And in, in terms of preying on people with limited economic opportunity, which is very much the system here in the U.S., all the more effective when that economic opportunity is further reduced. Uh, what do you imagine will be the second order effects of the crash macroeconomically, i.e. beyond just the companies or VCs directly involved in crypto? 
Well, you can see all of crypto is basically being this kind of at a macro level, basically just a wealth transfer from the general public, the global south, uh, into the hands of a few technologists and venture capitalists. So unfortunately, it's kind of the story of the world, like the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And I think crypto is basically just a way to kind of exasperate that divide even more. And so the second order effects for that are going to be both you know, financial, social, um, and I think they're just going to lead to a breakdown of trust in our public institutions, because people are going to be like, after every crash, like, why didn't the government come and save us? Why weren't the laws enforced? And there's some really <laughs> strong claims that the government has basically just chosen not to regulate these things or not done as enforcement as they could. And we already live in a time when kind of trust in institutions and democracy is at an all-time low. And so my, my deep fear right now is that, like, on the second order effect of kind of a market crash, like, we're just going to see an even deepening, like, distrust in both capitalism, in markets, uh, in democratic institutions and the courts generally. And that can only have like even more profound knock-on effects for both culture and just the global financial system. Yeah, it's really interesting. We're recording this today um, after what was probably, I think, the single most successful election day for the progressive wing of the Democratic Party in a lot of the primaries that just happened in a few of the general races. Um, you know, there was a lot of, there were many cases of, you know, big money institutional um, Democrats, some even directly backed by crypto billionaires um, being defeated by things like justice Democrats, um, much more labor oriented Democrats. We also see, you know, we have the Amazon labor union movement. We have unionization happening at places like Starbucks where I think we are starting to see in some ways a real renaissance of left populism as an answer to, you know, this extreme wealth inequality, this extreme sort of corporatist, oligarchical um, sort of, you know, increasingly pseudo democracy. So. I do think that there are a lot of positive signs as far as where some of this rage is being directed. And I think a lot of people with access to the right information are are understanding the a lot of the underlying causes of these, you know, real economic uh, distressors. But I have a hard time feeling that the crypto bros are going to get humiliated and then be like, well, I should form a union at my job, like, or I should like advocate for, you know, universal healthcare or really anything that would materially benefit them. It seems like from where I am standing that most of them are probably heading into a very destructive, sort of deceptive, faux populist right movement, which is not dissimilar from crypto itself. Where do you land on that? So I think crypto has kind of, it's a spectrum like most things, right? There's a kind of <laughs> a degree of extreme behavior we see. And you're exactly right in your analysis. I think um, kind of financial populism is both a phenomenon on both the left and the right. On the left, it kind of manifests in things like Occupy Wall Street in the United States, where it's kind of largely kind of a left-wing movement that was kind of reacting toward the speculative excesses of Wall Street and the moral hazard that led up to the subprime mortgage crisis. And a lot of those critiques were exactly right. That's what actually what happened. Like <laughs> the banks basically got bailed out on the back of the taxpayers and, you know, basically nobody went to jail. And so like they're just going to keep doing it again, right? And that's a selling analysis of a deep systemic law in um, the financial system in the United States. Um, however, like, unfortunately, crypto 
is kind of like the Occupy Wall Street from the kind of, I would say, kind of a more far right libertarian perspective, where they kind of start from the same premise as Occupy Wall Street and say like, well, the French system is corrupt. And so we're going to build a new one and like a phoenix, like basically like this new financial system will rise from the ashes, like free of the corruption. And we're going to build this kind of new anarcho-capitalist utopia in which basically, you know, the excesses of Wall Street are no longer going to exist. However, you know, the world is not that simple, unfortunately. Um, and unfortunately, what's happened with crypto is that instead of becoming this kind of revolution in like equity and building a more egalitarian financial system it's become the very apotheosis of the corruption it aimed to replace like it's as if everybody in occupy wall street was something replaced by like a wolf of wall street hedge fund manager and that's become the movement now they are basically not even populist anymore they're basically like nihilists where like nothing matters except number go up and i'm just going to be in it for myself and enrich myself and that is a very dangerous ideology that i think is becoming very contagious within the crypto bro community. And I see it becoming increasingly more toxic and more toxic. And it's not even a reaction to politics anymore. It's kind of a, a rejection of it in its entirety. It's basically this kind of subversive opportunism in which people just like, you know, God is dead, nothing matters, just enriching myself. And like, that is an ideology I think that we should reject and it's outright because I think it's very bad for everybody. I agree. And they, you know, there's not even like a cool style to go with the nihilism. Like they're not even like wearing like cool all black clothes and like, you know, get a look at least if you're going to have that ideology. Um, okay. Uh, so you mentioned like the big financial institutions, the, you know, um, I think the righteous pushback that was seen on both the left and the right against things like the excesses of Wall Street, um, of which, you know, crypto is to some extent a manifestation, at least in part, um, in the terms of the popularity. But as we know, I think most of us now, there are a lot of legitimate um, financial institutions that are now getting very involved in crypto. So we have someone asking, um, which coins do the big institutional investors have the most money in, and how much control can they exert to keep those particular coins afloat? So... For all of the failures of regulation in the United States and in Europe, there are a fair number of firewalls that are in place at the moment. Like if you happen to work in a bank and you say you're like a mid-level executive and you want to go to like one of your executives and say, we're gonna start a new you know, division of our company that trades in crypto assets. You unfortunately still have to go to the compliance department and they're stuck with lawyers. And the lawyers are gonna ask you a fundamental question, which is like, what regulatory regime does this come into? And then the lawyers are like, well, I don't know. Like, and so a lot of times banks, people know this are rather risk averse institutions, right? For a very good reason, because they're regulated to the hilt, right? And when they generally, when they, you know, lose large amounts of, you know, customer money, there's consequences in the form of like getting their banking license revoked, right? Um, and those regulations exist for a very good reason. Um, and so the firewall largely has been that banks have not been able to basically put crypto assets directly on their balance sheets. Um, they've been able to offer some boutique products to some of their like high net worth individuals, but a lot of those are basically largely unregulated anyways, because you're dealing with completely high net worth individuals. And there's a whole different set of rules for that. Um, but there's not a large amount of crypto derivatives they're offering, you know, extremely you know, complex like CDO squares on top of like Dogecoin or anything yet, yet being the operative word there. Um, and it's primarily bracketed to like, you know, the hedge fund space, family offices and non-financial 
uh, non-bank financial institutions, so the so-called shadow banking world, right? Um, and that's a big amount of money that's sloshing around, but it's not nearly as much as like, say, like the balance sheet of JP Morgan suddenly buying, you know, $50 billion worth of Bitcoin. That's not going to happen anytime soon because the law won't let them do it. Um, and so for good, you know, the laws are basically fired wall out of crypto assets. So people talk about like crypto is inevitable and like, you know, there's just too much institutional money. No, not really. Relative to like, you know, what's actually out there, mostly it's extremely risky investment vehicles kind of using it as a kind of speculative plaything. And that's not anywhere close to kind of becoming systemic or kind of causing the entire economy to crash if the entire thing were suddenly to like evaporate to zero tomorrow. Like the S&P would probably not move all that much if... Bitcoin basically just stopped existing. Well, on that note, as a kind of final question, a lot of people are asking some variation of, will the crypto crash trigger or exacerbate the next recession? Now, I know that if you were able to accurately predict that, you would be the wealthiest man in the world. Um, but I would just love to kind of hear your thoughts macroeconomically. Obviously, we are in a very complicated moment uh, for lots of non-crypto economic reasons. Um, but I'd love to hear how you think crypto factors into that. So the thing about recessions and like market meetings is that they're a really well-studied phenomenon at this point. There's like a really canonical text that I encourage people to read. It's called... Um, panics, manias, and crashes by Kindleberger. It's kind of a historical text that looks at everything, all these market crashes going back to like the 1700s. And there's a kind of singular thing that always happens that there's a large expansion of credit uh, in the form of rather opaque financialization. It's pretty characteristic of almost every single financial crisis. And then the subprime mortgage crisis, we saw basically uh, the amount of credit expand in the form of mortgage lending from like, I don't know, was it like 60 billion to like, several trillion like in this kind of imaginary value that people have created out of debt instruments right and generally when you have bubbles that expand that much and this large amount of like opaque financialization that generally tends to have negative consequences and that's had been all the way throughout the 1700s right and so unfortunately right now what we're seeing is the same kind of like credit bubble but happening in kind of like the stable coin markets so the stablecoin markets people don't know are basically these kind of opaque financial pools of assets where basically you, I have a dollar and I want to give you know Chelsea coin, but unfortunately one dollar does not buy like one dollar equivalent of Chelsea coin, right? You can take my dollar and turn it into like a hundred Chelsea coins, right? And there's some very large stablecoins that basically do just that. They basically create this kind of leverage position on top of a very, very small amount of assets. And that basically allows them to basically create all of these sort of synthetic bubbles of things that kind of look like dollars, but aren't actually backed by dollars. And that's a form of credit. Um, now, banks can do this because they have very, very strict rules around like uh, reserve requirements and they have to report all these things. But these stablecoins look like giant black boxes full of leverage positions that we have no idea what they're in because they're all held offshore in like the Cayman Islands or the Bahamas. And if there is going to be a kind of systemic risk, it's the amount of like debt that's being created at the moment inside of these stable coins. And we saw in the last week when these stable coins blow, they go to zero very fast. They fail violently and with very little predictability. And when I look at like people proposing like we should integrate stable coins into the wider economy, I think they gone completely mental, right? We have no idea what's inside these things, but we know that they're extremely leveraged. And what does history tell us about what, time, what happens in, like when we have these kind of structures? Like it never ends well. 
And so I think people should look at the Luna stablecoin crash in the last week, uh, and they should see shades of 2008 all over again. And that should scare them because like, if we don't <laughs> correct the kind of systemic problems, uh, they're just going to repeat themselves over and over again. And a lot of 2008, the kind of pathologies that gave rise to that we're seeing created over in the crypto market. Um, and that would be kind of a vicious cycle to repeat because financial crises are truly, truly awful things that we should try to avoid if at all possible. And certainly not for something as kind of illusory in its kind of benefits as crypto and stable coins, which can't even justify their own existence because they all rest on absurdities. And so that's the problem I see with this. Like we could be very much on the path toward creating another financial crisis if these things are allowed to expand into the broader economy and become part of our financial system. We absolutely have to kind of firewall them off from the traditional ecosystem uh, and just make sure that they can't grow because ultimately they're kind of like um, they're like monsters. You have to keep feeding them and they require more and more food. But if you starve them, eventually they collapse like most bubbles do. That was dark. So I'm going to actually end this on a note of levity. <laughs> Can I get your opinion on Elon Musk just for just for giggles? Oh, I think Elon's discovering that he can use Twitter to do market manipulation on unregulated assets. And the SEC is like, I don't know, maybe we should let him. I mean, I don't see how this is good. Like these kind of market manipulations are basically just a direct transfer from the public into Elon's pockets that he can go do whatever Elon does, which is play more speculative games with the market. And at some point our regulators have to step in and basically say like, this is not good for like uh, capitalism, our markets, the US as a whole. And, you know, markets exist to you know, price goods and services, not to be some sort of play things for, you know, billionaire plutocrats to kind of play with on Twitter. So that's my opinion on Elon. I agree. Um, but as I did mention in my video, excellent, excellent hair transfer surgery. So we have to give him that, you know. And there you go. He might be constantly violating SEC regs and screwing over his own fan base uh, financially. But, you know, got to give credit where it's due. Great hair plugs. Um, OK, so uh, where can people go to find more of what you do? Oh, so I am SMDL on Twitter. Uh, I am stevendeal.com just my, my blog if you want to read all of my angry rants about uh, about crypto. And I actually have a book coming out in a few weeks, which will be in fine retailers near you very soon. It's called Popping the Crypto Bubble. Oh my gosh. We're going to get a copy and display it prominently here in the office. That is amazing. Um, thank, you so, thank you so much for joining us today and for all of the amazing work you do slaying the crypto demons on a daily basis. Love you being with you, Shelly. You did great yes. work as well. Cheers. Yay. Um, and thank you all for tuning in. And we will see you next week, next Monday to be specific, on an all new episode of the Financial Confessions. Bye, guys. Yeah.